Hello, everyone. Welcome to the introductory episode of the Thinking Out Loud podcast. My name is Julian, and I will take this time at the beginning of this episode to briefly outline who I am, what the podcast is, and what the podcast is not. So as for who I am, uh, there really isn't much interesting to say. Um, I am not credentialed. I am a college student in my last year studying philosophy and uh, literature as well. And I have recently decided that going further with my study of philosophy, not the, tr- the road I want to take for various reasons. And so in- instead of uh, going to grad school, I'm contemplating other options. And among them, I did think that starting a podcast would be useful for me personally and I think for others as well, to some extent, if I am successful. And uh, this brings me to what the podcast is, what my intention is. And as of right now, in these early stages, I do not have a clear intent with the podcast. The name, Thinking Out Loud, is really the main point of what I'm trying to do here. I will be recording my thoughts. I will be working through things in an unscripted fashion, exploring ideas or various issues, whether they be political, philosophical, literary, uh, matters in psychology. Um, Essentially, there will not be Uh, a a clean organization to this. The podcast is meant to be just what it is called. Me thinking out loud and trying to work through these things whilst recording. And so it would follow that the podcast will be perhaps at times a bit unorganized. I will be stumbling over words or at a loss for what to say next. I will maybe find it difficult to avoid digressions and to stay on topic. I may lose the thread of the point I'm trying to make or that I'm building up to, because after all, I may not know what the point is or what what the main thrust of what I'm trying to say is in any given topic. So really, this is mainly about me trying to model in some way, in some meaningful, uh, I would hope, uh, meaningful way of how to think in a sustained fashion on a given topic or issue, which is something that, ironically, because this is an internet platform, podcasting for the most part, ironically on the internet it seems to be, and this goes for entertainment in general, it seems to be more difficult to come by uh, thinking in that sustained fashion. What, What is typically... What you will typically find on the internet is something that is geared toward a shorter span of attention. And so with this podcast, I do want to, I guess my one intention consciously that I can articulate is to be able to provide some example of what it's like for somebody who maybe does not have the requisite knowledge or credentials in any given area to at least try and work something out 
and find out what they think. Find some road towards a solution to a given problem um, outside of any uh, institution, right? Outside of the, the media structure or academia or anything like that. And I do think that this is one of the great potentials of podcasting that is only recently being um, made known. And so now I will move on to what the podcast is not. Um, As I've already hinted at, the podcast is not meant to be an expert opinion sort of a platform to where I will give, I don't promise that uh, the information I provide will always be accurate, right? I could get things wrong. The podcast is also not uh, neatly constrained to any given topic. Um, I will probably discuss a wide variety of things. Um, Politics, uh, philosophy will obviously be a central part of it just because it is something I am deeply interested in and that I have been studying for quite some time now. Uh, But nonetheless, I will probably incorporate pop culture or just various um, social and cultural Uh, discussions that uh, are being had in the public discourse. So uh, there will not be any constraints that I will impose uh, at this early stage, but perhaps as George R.R. Martin says, the tale will grow in the telling, which is another way of saying that as I continue on the podcast and continue releasing episodes and perhaps ideally getting better at thinking out loud, they, there will be a more clear focus and intent that I will have with this uh, program. But in any case, um, it's time to move on to the main topic of the podcast. I think the first topic that I will go over is something that has some relation to what my personal life has been like for the past couple of years and something that is perhaps a, a current an aspect, something that is um, present, at least in some forms, in our culture today, and that is asceticism. Now, what is asceticism, to begin? Asceticism, in its extreme form, historically, has been typically practiced by priests or other religious figures in both the Western and Eastern um, traditions. And it is it is essentially denying oneself the physical pleasures and more broadly refusing to engage in a worldly existence which is preoccupied with worldly desires such as the acquisition of wealth, fame, power, uh, and the gratification of our basic natural impulses for, uh, for instance, sex, food, drink. Um, The ascetic will deny themselves these things. They will live rather simply in that sense. The food they will eat will be minimal and not meant to, uh, you know, be to gratify or to be interesting on the tongue. The same with uh, the, the sexual impulse will largely go unsatiated, uh, they will most often, ascetics in the extreme form, 
and the religious tradition will be chaste. And I think it is a good idea to turn to Friedrich Nietzsche, the German philosopher, to begin to describe or to go into what my focus will be with this episode, um, which is the motivation for asceticism. Since in just this brief description I've given, I would imagine many people who are unfamiliar with it, their first reaction may be that it is a wildly unappealing form of life, something that seems devoid of any interest to them, uh, that seems devoid of any uh, joy or happiness, right? If you deny yourself, many of the things that seem a natural part of being a human being. So I will now turn to uh, Friedrich Nietzsche's essay, uh, The Genealogy of Morals. This is from the third essay, where he explores the meaning of ascetic ideals. This is section 11. Quote, The idea at issue here is the valuation the ascetic priest places on our life. He juxtaposes it along with what pertains to it, nature, world, the whole sphere of becoming and transitoriness, with a quite different mode of existence, which it opposes and excludes, unless it turn against itself, deny itself. In that case, the case of the ascetic life, life counts as a bridge to that other mode of existence. The ascetic treats life as a wrong road on which one must finally walk back to the point where it begins, or as a mistake that is put right by deeds, that we ought to put right, for he demands that one go along with him. Where he can, he compels acceptance of his evaluation of existence. That is the end of the quote. So what Nietzsche describes here is um, one possible motivation for the ascetic form of life is that the ascetic priest sees life as insubstantial or as in some sense a mistake. And what this rests on partially is the common sense fact, I think, that many people would agree with when they begin to think about it, at least begin to relate it to their own lives, that the, the striving towards some desire, towards its fulfillment, whatever desire we may be talking about, often when one finally has their desire fulfilled, their anticipation or expectation of what that fulfillment will be like, how much how happier they will be or how much uh, pleasure they will feel, it's often pales in comparison when it is actually fulfilled. When they are in the moment of the desire being fulfilled, they realize it was nowhere near as sweet as they thought it would be when they were working towards it. And uh, not to mention the fact that um, evolutionarily, we are designed in some sense to not be satisfied with just fulfilling any given desire. Uh, we, we move on to the next thing. After all, if there was an organism that, that ate a single meal and felt at ease and ceased to be active at all, uh, that organism would not last very long, much less pass on its genes to the next generation. Um, this is a, you know, a rather crude and simplistic way of putting it um, in terms of evolutionary biology, but I think you all will uh, get my meaning here. 
But in any case, this is, I think, a genuine phenomenon that the ascetic priest is attempting to respond to, albeit in a rather extreme fashion. In other words, he sees this life on earth, this worldly existence, as a mistake, as a result of the fact that any gratification of the desire, of any given desire, is incredibly disappointing, and that one's suffering in being deprived of desires or working towards them far outweighs the satiation and the frequency that the desires are satiated. And so given this rather pessimistic view of the world and of existence in general, asceticism as a spiritual practice, typically, um, again speaking as, as a sort of historical phenomenon, was a means towards some other plane of existence to where these problems uh, are not present. And, you know, in the Christian tradition, this may be heaven. In other traditions, it may be some kind of uh, spiritual enlightenment, such as nirvana. Um, in any case, there is a sort of denial of the world, of the current world, and our worldly existence. And the motivation behind it is, as Nietzsche says later in the section, as another aspect of what motivates the priest. Um, quote, Every animal instinctively strives for an optimum of favorable conditions under which it can expend all its strength and achieve its maximal feeling of power. Every animal abhors, just as instinctively and with the sub subtlety of discernment that is higher than all reason, every kind of intrusion or hindrance that obstructs or could obstruct this path to the optimum. I am not speaking of its path to happiness, but its path to power, to action, to the most powerful activity, and in most cases, actually, its path to unhappiness. End of the quote. So, another thread of what motivates the ascetic form of life, at least in its extreme form, as Nietzsche is treating of here, for the most part, in this essay, is an attempt to gain power over life itself. That instead of being directed, in a sense, a slave to one's impulses, to one's desires, to one's more animalistic instincts or passions, one attempts to deny oneself those things, their satiation, in an attempt to gain power over oneself and over existence broadly construed. So this is one possible motivation for the ascetic form of life, or at least two aspects that I've outlined of one possible motivation. Namely, it is about power. It is about taking the reins of the self and not being uh, directed or um, beholden to these things that are so difficult and so consistently um, pressing upon us, these desires that are a constant uh, part of our life. Um, and in one sense, there is something to this approach, despite the fact that Nietzsche later on describes it as only a provisional solution to the problem I laid out earlier, namely the insubstantiality and ephemerality of fulfillment in this life. Um, but in any case, over the long run, 
it will cease to feel like a deprivation, at least not to the same extent it will in the short term. And I think many of you listening will find something to this, because just think about it, um, you have likely attempted to give something up or break a bad habit in your own life. So for instance, you may have the idea one day um, to clean up your diet, start to eat healthier, or to stop smoking cigarettes. These are physical pleasures, right? That, that there is some joy or in, something that you enjoy about them, about eating a donut every morning or uh, smoking a few cigarettes after dinner or something like that. Um, but w when you give it up, obviously in the short term, it's quite uncomfortable. You'll crave it. Um, it's difficult to exercise uh, restraint. Uh, you may, you know, cave in and uh, have a cigarette or you know, a nice uh, dessert or something like that. But over the long term, eventually, um, after enough time has passed and you have not caved and you have stuck to it, 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 you will cease to feel the desire for the whatever it may be that you're giving up as, as, um, as strongly, as often, until eventually, um, oftentimes this may happen, uh, one day you'll be presented with uh, what you formerly desired and you'll wonder, you know, why did I ever want that in the first place? It's really not worth it, or I don't really like it that much anymore. Uh, I'm not tempted really much at all. And I think in some sense, this is what asceticism perhaps attempts to do. This is one of its goals, is to do that in an extreme fashion, to where you will think that or adopt that attitude towards everything that is transitory, that is temporary. Essentially, you adopt this sort of distance, this critical distance um, towards everything in life, towards the gratification of really any desire, to where you become indifferent, largely, uh, beyond the basic, you know, meeting your basic needs to continue to survive. Um, but in any case, I do want to move on to outline another possible motivation for asceticism. And this is something that I will draw on my own experience in order to attempt to elucidate. So another possible motivation for the ascetic form of life is at least the perceived um, notion of oneself, that one is not up to the task of fulfilling one's desires in life. So um, in order to elaborate on this more, in my own life for the past few years, I have been unemployed and I've been focusing almost entirely on studying philosophy, of uh, reading philosophical texts and writing philosophy and essentially attempting to get better at the craft of writing and thinking in a philosophical way. But this was partly due to the fact that I did not find any long-term goal, uh, any worthwhile goal in the long-term that I could achieve in a more normal, quote-unquote, or at least non-ascetic mode of life. I did not feel that I, I was uh, strong enough or I was capable enough to strive towards the things that you ought to want in this society. Uh, a successful career, 
uh, a romantic partner, uh, things of that nature. And I, I took a look at those valued ends, and I, I was skeptical of my own ability to achieve them. I felt too weak to be able to embark on the arduous journey towards those goals. And um, as a result, I decided to withdraw from attempting to fulfill those desires into a more, I guess you could say, ascetic form of life. Um, there I was in the library day after day, reading, studying. Um, I had very little social connections with anybody. I would be friendly uh, to people. I would uh, talk with people, but I did not have any deeper friendships or romantic relationships. I did not bother to date anybody or pursue anybody in that way. Largely my life was devoted to the mind, I guess, in some sense. Um, and what I want to get at here is that it seems that asceticism could be motivated by the desire to gain power over life, over the world. But it could also be motivated from a desire to withdraw from the world out of fear and out of a perceived inadequacy. So, um, and just to elaborate more on this, I can maybe give some like fairly simple examples. So like, let's say you go on a date and it doesn't go very well for whatever reason. Maybe you run out of things to talk about. Maybe the person you're on the date with is not uh, particularly interested in what you do or um, something like that. It's just, it, it's a fairly negative experience. Maybe it makes you feel embarrassed or maybe you just, um, in some cases, are get the you know get creeped out. There's some creep you go on a date with, and uh, they 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 make you afraid uh, for your safety. Anything like that. So now, normally, one would react to that. Well, I hesitate to say normally, but one possible reaction to that negative experience is, well, you know, this is the way of the world. Uh, it's not something that I want to happen again. Of course, I want to avoid it. Um, but you know, it's not going to stop me from continuing to date and continuing on this uh, this journey toward fulfilling some desire. In this case, you know, a desire for some romantic connection or just simply just to have sex. In any case, whatever it may be, uh, one reaction is that a singular negative experience or even a string of experiences, you know, you come to terms with them in some sense and you just move on. But I think increasingly... Um, I'm not claiming that this is uh, ubiquitous by any means or even a true for the majority of people, but I think for a certain segment of people, it could be the case, and it certainly is the case for me, that when confronted with certain negative experiences, one does not simply take them in stride and move on, but one sees them as some evidence of, well, maybe I'm just not cut out for this, or maybe... I should just stop altogether. Maybe this desire is really not worth it, and I should just turn to other things. So in this sense, uh, the, the ascetic form of life, when framed by this sort of example, 
is an avoidance, a product of a weakness of will, in the sense that one is not willing to go forward uh, with the necessary actions towards some valued end. And I think that a necessary prerequisite of this ascetic response to, I would say, perhaps fairly uh, common experiences, negative experiences, is a lack of emotional resilience as well. So one, one for whatever reason, um, just does not feel able to cope or integrate these negative experiences into their life in a meaningful way to where, uh, in a sense, they get stuck on them, right? They get, uh, they feel unable to move past them or unable to divorce them from their own conception of themselves. And I think what I mean by that is one sees a negative experience as some evidence of some unchanging essence of who they are. I guess another way of putting that that makes a little bit more sense or is a bit more clear is that the negative experience, say a bad date or a friendship that goes sour, somebody sees that as some kind of irrefutable evidence of some lack on their part. But the point is that I think in itself that is perhaps partially true, right? We are in some sense responsible. Uh, there are exceptions, of course, for some of the negative experiences we have in our life. But I think the difference here, what perhaps motivates an ascetic response to the negative experience is that that is all that is interpreted from the experience. That there's a, perhaps a sense of a guilt or bad conscious, conscience that stems from that experience because the person sees it as entirely a matter of their own failings or their own inadequacy or their own weakness or impotence. So this is perhaps, you know, one possible motivation for asceticism in, in various forms. It does not have to be of the extreme variety that Nietzsche discusses of the priest. But nonetheless, this is perhaps interrelated in some way as well to Nietzsche's uh, outline of another motivation for asceticism that I've already gone over, namely the desire to gain power over life. Because when you think about it, at first what, began, what begins, as I've been saying, as a withdrawal from personal negative uh, experiences could become, as I've said earlier, it could evolve into a sense of power and dignity in oneself. Now, whether this is a genuine sense of power or dignity is something I will leave aside for now, but for now I'm going to um, elaborate a little bit more on what I mean by that, or what could be meant by that. So, to return to the example from earlier, let's say, you know, I'm saying that I'm going to give up cigarettes, or at least I'm going to take a break from smoking for, let's say, two weeks, and then maybe I, if I really think uh, cigarettes are pleasurable and I enjoy them. Maybe I'll pick it up again after two weeks, but we'll see. Let's just see if I can take a break from them for two weeks. So let's say two weeks goes by and 
my attitude changes in the way I have described already. Namely, I, uh, I, I look at a cigarette, I pull it out of the pack, and I, I think, well, you know, I, I don't think I really need this. I'm not sure why I ever liked smoking that much, why I used to like it so much. I'm above it, right? This is, so this is, I think, perhaps what Nietzsche was implying, or one of the things that could be interpreted from the text that maybe is not said directly, is that when one withdraws from these worldly pursuits initially out of a sense of fear or inadequacy, perhaps eventually when those desires are cease to be satiated, whatever desires we're talking about, maybe after a while, when an opportunity is presented for the desire to finally be satiated, what began as fear, as weakness of will, now evolves into a kind of haughty uh, contempt for the desire itself. And I'm not saying what this is a this is a positive or negative thing. Uh, I think there are there's a discussion to be had there. But I think the point that I'm getting at here that I want to emphasize is that it it the motivations uh, can sort of interrelate or evolve into one another, perhaps. So first, I avoid. Um, I, I, I adopt a sort of ascetic uh, form of life in order to avoid something, in order to avoid something painful or potentially painful in the course of attempting to fulfill a desire. But then eventually, after some time, I gain a sense of power over the self, over myself, uh, because I feel that I no longer need to satisfy the desire. So it no longer feels like a deprivation. But in any case, uh, that will conclude, I think, this section of the episode on the desert of asceticism, as I will call it. Because after all, it seems that the ascetic form of life is, in a sense, a desert, devoid of people, of food, water. One is alone with one's thoughts, and that's about all there is in some sense. But I think um, I will move on to a new topic for the latter half of this episode. This topic, I think, is related in some sense to what I was discussing earlier about one possible motivation for asceticism being weakness of will or a sense of fear and inadequacy. And I, this, this section will be called simply youth and competence. So as a young person myself, and I think young people in general, what they are partly seeking in order to survive in some sense, but also to feel fulfilled in a deeper sense is a sense of competence, right? They want to be good at something, at some trade, at some skill, just whatever it may be, they want a sense of competence that they have, that they are capable of producing something or of navigating uh, various situations in regards to their job or something like that. Um, and so when you're young, when you have not yet had the requisite education or training or experience to achieve um, competence, uh, I think this is uh, an interesting phenomenon in the contemporary world, in our culture now, because in a sense the this, this perceived lack of competence in oneself when one is young 
in a way contradicts what I have heard recently from, I believe, Sylvia Plath's book, The Bell Jar. It's where, it's a book, uh, in one section she describes a tree that has uh, fruits growing on its branches. And the, the fruits are essentially a metaphorical representation of what the possible futures that the narrator can, uh, can live in. So one is a fulfilling career, another is a, a great family, yet another is various lovers with strange names. Um, this, this analogy, or rather this, uh, this, this sort of image that is portrayed in the bell jar, I think points out an interesting um, problem in contemporary times that has been mentioned before namely the lack of hope in the future and the sense that we are living in a perpetual present uh, where you know all of our life is consistently concerned with some kind of either hedonistic pursuit to feel better or just simply surviving right in a time when uh, living the same life that our parents or previous generations have lived is becoming more difficult rather than less difficult. So I think what's interesting about the bell jar is that there's an implicit expectation, at least from what I understand, I have not read the section uh, in question. This is something I'm hearing secondhand about the tree and the fruits. But really the point is um, the implicit expectation on the part of the narrator is that these fruits are able to be plucked so the difficulty of the narrator, as I understand it, is um, what fruit to pick from the tree. You cannot have more than one. You, you have to pick one fruit, and that is your future. So in one sense, I think this is a fairly consistent problem in a young person's life, that they, they have these options, these roads available to them, and they need to make some kind of decision at least in the short term, they have to commit themselves to something, even if they can change, or at least in our time, are compelled to change careers or learn a new kind of skill, achieve a different kind of competence down the road in order to survive. So I think the, the problem here, though, with the bell jar image is that perhaps many people uh, perhaps only some people, though I do, I, I do think that there are at least some people uh, do not have this implicit expectation that these fruits are able to be plucked. Um, and again, this relates to earlier as to why this may be, as to why these fruits may be inaccessible to somebody um, because they have a weak will. They're not able to follow the requisite path to its logical conclusion in order to achieve this future that is represented by any given fruit on the tree. And so I think there are also larger social, cultural, and economic forces that may make some fruits for a great many people inaccessible. And so the narrator's problem is in a sense a problem that is perhaps more distant from us as contemporary people because the, the, the main problem is not that 
there are so many fruits and we are not sure what to pick. The problem is that many of the fruits that we see, uh, we don't see ourselves able to reach. So even if we wanted them, uh, they weren't, they're not able, they're not accessible to us. We can't reach and pick them off the tree. So I think this is, in a sense, an inverse problem to the one that is meant to be portrayed, or at least implicitly uh, supposed, by the bell jar image. So our problem is not one of, in a sense, too many choices. It is a problem of deprivation, of maybe in some cases too little choice, but also in many cases the sense that making a choice at all seems uh, anathema. It seems completely out of reach for us because we are not comfortable with being able to live with the choice um, or rather even to f make it in any meaningful way because the future we may think we're choosing will not actually come to be. And just to get a little bit more concrete with this and perhaps to be a little bit more clear about what I'm trying to say here, or what I'm thinking at least, was my hypothesis about this. Um, just think about the current situation we're in right now with the pandemic. People are not entirely sure what the economic fallout of this crisis will be. Right now, we are feeling the effects already. Many people, especially those of more vulnerable populations, right, of the African-American community, or those who are already working in uh, service jobs of various sorts, um, and of course, the healthcare workers as well, they're already in a greater, at a greater risk, both of financial ruin and of uh, health ruin costs to their health. So, you know, once this is over, whenever we returned to a sort of more, uh, I hesitate to say normal, but a what more closely resembles a normal economic situation, how much damage will have been done? How many opportunities will be uh, cut off from people simply because the economy is just not as strong as it was. It is, um, it's really up for uh, speculation. Um, but I think what we can say as of now is that some fruits on the tree will be out of reach for actually a, a greater share of people. So that is just one example. And uh, another example is just very general kind of common sense things that many people are observing in contemporary times. So for instance, let's take the nice family part of the tree that the narrator has been contemplating in the bell jar. Oh well, um, you know, the narrator may be thinking, I just want to marry somebody and maybe have some children and focus on that. I'm not too uh, concerned with a career in this version of my future. I'm simply just trying to raise my children, trying to, you know, uh, maintain those social bonds and not get involved in the rat race of uh, capitalism or anything like that. Uh, I think currently this option is becoming less and less viable for various reasons. 
Now it's increasingly difficult to get by on a single income, unless that income is quite large, of course. So increasingly, especially in larger cities, if you're with somebody, if you're married or just in a long-term relationship or whatever it may be, there is an increasing pressure or at least necessity to have two incomes in order to support uh, yourself. So uh, already we have that fruit perhaps getting f harder to reach, um, at least for some people. And uh, so when we take these two examples together, we see that the choices are being constrained. And so our problem is not, well, I have so many choices for my future. Um, I'm not sure which to pick because I, then I'm leaving behind so much that I could have picked that I may regret or something like that. This is the situation of the narrator in the bell jar. Rather, um, the problem for some people now, uh, exactly how many, I'm not sure. I can't say. It's probably up for debate. Uh, the, the situation is, well, I, I just can't see myself able to achieve any of these things. These, these dreams of the future represented by the fruits are just that. They're just dreams. They're not anything that seem to be plausible versions of what where I may be um, years down the line. And just to elaborate more on this problem, on maybe other aspects of it, uh, I will talk a little bit about a sort of hypothesis or a thought I've had about self-help culture. So self-help culture, I think, is uh, becoming an increasingly large and profitable industry in recent times. And I will say, just for the sake of um, transparency here, that I don't think I've ever read a self-help book. I've been exposed to some self-help ideas or material online. It's just everywhere. Um, so it's kind of hard to avoid it. And I do have various criticisms of it. Um, but I think one that I may outline here is that it could be um, a proposed solution to the situation I'm outlining. Namely that it's becoming increasingly more difficult to live the life that our parents or previous generations have lived. So a response to that is, well, we better kick kick ourselves into high gear and to exert ourselves to strengthen our wills in order to achieve what others have achieved already. So in other words, it's going to be harder, but self-help is perhaps a means of motivating us and keeping us in shape, or rather whipping us into shape in order to achieve what we want, to pluck the fruit, uh, as it were. But I think this is dangerously close, at least self-help may be in the territory of illusion, of the sense that, well, just as long as, you know, I develop some good habits and I keep my, uh, um, keep my room in order and all of this, uh, um, and, you know, go to therapy, work out my issues, and I, I, I build enduring friendships and all of these things, right, that self-help preaches at various, in various forms. If I do that, then maybe I can really make something of myself. Maybe it'll work out for me. And uh, there's no, I don't think there's really any guarantee of that. But it seems that self-help may uh, persuade some people 
that there is some kind of guarantee for one's individual efforts on that front. That just as long as you follow this program and uh, get everything in order, you can live the life that your parents lived. You can pluck any uh, fruit from the tree that you desire. So, and another aspect of this that perhaps relates to competence is that self-help could be an illusory means to being extraordinary. And this is a sort of conflicting message in our culture. Um, this is maybe perhaps an oversimplification of it, but I think it is one way of putting it, and it is this. People are afraid of being normal. People are afraid of not being interesting or different from others, of not being individuals, because American society has a streak of individualism, although exactly what kind of individualism, I think, is a bit more complicated than some people will, will tell you. But in any case, I think there is some truth to the claim that people want to be different, want to be extraordinary, and as a result idolize people in media who appear to be extraordinary due to their fame, to their musical ability, or something like that. Um, especially as a young person, you look at that and you may think, wow, how could I ever achieve that? Why would I bother trying to write a novel or try to write a song or, <laughs> for that matter, try to start a podcast? If I can never see myself being as good or as successful, as extraordinary as these people I'm seeing already, who seem to be at the top of their game in their respective uh, field. So this is where self-help can maybe try and attempt, at least in an insubstantial way, to fill the void. Because it says, at least implicitly, well, as long as you follow this advice, my my tips, my 12 rules for life, <laughs> as it were, um, you can become extraordinary. You can stand out. You can live a life that is out of the norm and that is something worthwhile. But, and this sort of relates to another thing that is a conflicting message in the culture, where there will be often people, especially people who are older than you, when you're young, who will say, feed you the same cliches of, well, keep your feet on the ground, try to be practical with what you want, with your dreams for the future. But then there's also this other pole of that, which is do what you're passionate about. Uh, don't care about money or success. Just go for what you really like, and it'll work out for you in some way. And these are essentially opposite poles of, I think, the same sort of problem uh, that I mentioned earlier, the contemporary circumstance of lacking effective options or lacking any sort of effective means of choosing something. But of course, there are obvious problems with both of these approaches, one of them being that one does not have an accurate idea of their capabilities until one has embarked on a certain pursuit, right? One cannot know for sure if their dream is completely impractical or not feasible until they take some steps, at least, to attempt to fulfill it. 
And another problem with the other approach is that what seems to be reasonable or feasible is may not apply to you. It is um, dictated by the larger culture or the values that you're surrounded by. And so perhaps the common thread between these problems I've just outlined, uh, self-help as an illusory means to becoming extraordinary, the possible motivations for the ascetic form of life is that the bell jar image is largely, or perhaps partly, I should say, the result or one way of, um, one possible consequence of a lack of self-knowledge. Because in either circumstance, whether we're talking about the contemporary times where the choices are more constrained or one does not see themselves able to pick the fruit, or p at least to pick the fruit that they want, or in the narrator's circumstance where it seems to me the problem is that there are too many fruits available and the trouble is to decide on which one to pick given that that would mean the others are left on the tree to, uh, to wither. So what I think sort of uh, ties all of this together is a lack of self-knowledge. So um, in some sense, all of these problems stem from a lack of knowledge in one's own capabilities, in the feasibility of developing a certain kind of competence. And this leads, you know, in various forms to either either a, an avoidant withdrawal from the world, the ascetic form of life. It leads to illusory, um, individualistic pursuits of self-help or it could lead to idolization of people, which then leads to a weakness of will, or a, a sense of that any pursuit is futile because one will not live up to the fantastic images of their idols and how they see them. In some sense, this is all related or could be caused by the lack of self-knowledge of not knowing who you truly are and what you can do. And so to conclude, perhaps we have more to learn from Plato, a philosopher from hundreds of years past than we do from a self-help coach or a motivational speaker. And I think I will leave it there. This has been the first episode of the Thinking Out Loud podcast. I hope you have found it at least in some ways interesting or enjoyable, and I will see you next time.